In the search warrant, it does have U.S. code and what exactly they're saying he's under investigation for, and that is technically potential obstruction of justice and violations of the Espionage Act. The what? Boy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, no, it is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and a whole bunch of other affiliates. Which I don't have time to cover today. That's how much show I've got to get to. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. That was Brett Baer of Fox News at the top, seeming to have trouble getting those words out. Yes, I noticed that. Did you notice that? He sort of had to work through them. Uh, As uh, Stephen Colbert uh, said, I think correctly this past week, about Trump after the uh, FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. No matter what it is, it's always what you thought, but worse than you imagined. (laughs) Yes. So that, true. that is about right. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, what I really want to talk about, and I'm sure what Desi really wants me to talk about today, frankly, <laughs> uh, is the landmark, critical $370 billion climate bill that is soon to be headed towards the president's desk for his signature for by far the nation's largest investment, arguably the world's largest single investment, at least per capita, I think, uh, to finally begin tackling our climate crisis. It is a huge deal, and we will talk about that momentarily with one of our favorite guests. But of course, it is also not every day that a former president of the United States is apparently being investigated for probable cause of having violated the Espionage Act. Yes, Really. Uh, Now, much of this is breaking as we go to air, so I'm going to do my best to give you as much of the latest as I can. Let's start here. We've been discussing for days now how it had to be something much more than simply missing presidential records that resulted in the FBI and DOJ obtaining a warrant from a judge to execute a search of the home of a former president of the United States. That said, after airtime, Uh, From our previous show, Washington Post reported something that I don't believe I ever even contemplated we would have to discuss here. Classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items FBI agents sought in a search of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence on Monday, according to people familiar with the investigation. Now, so far... Nobody else has separately confirmed this specific reporting as we go to air, so take it with some caution for the moment. But still, if true, wow. Yeah. Experts, they report in classified information, said the unusual search underscores deep concern among government officials about the types of information they thought could be located at Trump's Mar-a-Lago and potentially in danger of falling into the wrong hands. 
The people who described some of the material that agents were seeking did not offer additional details about what type of information the agents were seeking, including whether it involved weapons, nuclear weapons belonging to the U.S. or some other nation, nor did they say if such documents were recovered as part of the search. And, yeah, we got a lot more information now coming in on that and what they did find in that search. I'll get to that in a second. But material about nuclear weapons is especially sensitive, the Post reports, and usually restricted to a number of a small number of government officials. Publicizing details about U.S. weapons could provide an intelligence roadmap to adversaries seeking to build ways of countering those systems and other countries might view exposing their nuclear secrets. If that's what was in those documents, for example, they would view that as a threat as well, according to the experts. One former Justice Department official, David Lofman, the uh, former chief of the department's counterintelligence section, which investigates leaks of classified information, said that if that is true, it would suggest that material residing unlawfully at Mar-a-Lago may have been classified at the highest classification level and would lend itself to greater hair-on-fire motivation to recover the material as quickly as possible. Former senior intelligence officials said in interviews that during the Trump administration, highly classified intelligence about sensitive topics, including about intelligence gathering on Iran, for instance, was routinely mishandled. One former official said the most highly classified information often ended up in the hands of personnel who did not appear to have either a need to possess it or were not authorized to read it. That former official also said signals intelligence intercepted electronic communications like emails and phone calls of foreign leaders was among the type of information that often ended up with unauthorized personnel. Such intercepts are among the most closely guarded secrets because of what they can reveal about how the U.S. has penetrated foreign governments. Now, mind you, uh, I need to stop here to help you recall Donald Trump's years of lock-her-up chants regarding Hillary Clinton. And even in response to the news of the search at Mar-a-Lago, Trump mentioned her again. That was all in response to emails on Hillary Clinton's that came into her private email address, which was not unlawful for her to use at the time, in which there were a few notes that others had sent to her marked as classified, not uh, top secret and other you know, serious classifications, higher classifications, not having anything to do with nuclear secrets, for example. But uh, for that and for what the DOJ determined was nothing that actually merited prosecution. We have had to hear those lock her up chants for what, about seven years now? Yes. Compare that concern about mishandled information in a handful of emails from others sent to her to what we are now hearing about th from from this actual president of the United States, formerly, who actually stole what appears to be more than a dozen boxes of highly classified documents from the White House, some of which, if the Post reporting is accurate, could include nuclear secrets. Now, as usual, 
I remain skeptical of all reporting that is not independently verifiable and comes from unnamed sources, etc. This story could be a way of sort of setting up the Washington Post or preparing folks for something that is worse than what actually occurred. But now, after Attorney General Merrick Garland, after days of being attacked by Republicans for the for the search at Mar-a-Lago, they were demanding an explanation, even though Trump could have given them one all along because he had a copy of the warrant, the cover page to the warrant, detailing what they were looking for and what crimes that they had, and a federal judge agreed they had probable cause to believe had been committed. And Trump also had a full inventory list of what exactly had been taken from his home. On Thursday, Garland called the critics bluff. He announced that he had filed, the DOJ had filed to unseal the warrant and the inventory list that Trump himself had but had refused to release as he was claiming to be a victim of an outrageous attack and the weaponization of the Justice Department and signaling that the U.S. is now a broken third world country. In other words, laundering his talking points through right wing media. Correct. So a few hours after the announcement that uh, Garland was seeking to unseal this uh, this warrant, Trump sort of used the I meant to do that defense. <laughs> he declared he wanted the material to be released. And he would, now, in fact, he was insisting that it be released, even though he could have done so the entire time. All right. Now, Friday, the judge uh, who had uh, signed the warrant in the first place has agreed to unseal the material and the Wall Street Journal even before it was unsealed by the judge, the Rupert Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal, uh, was the first report on what the FBI had obtained from the disgraced former president. The FBI recovered 11 sets of classified documents from its search of Mar-a-Lago, including some Materials marked as top secret slash SCI. That means special compartmented information that is only to be viewed by a very limited number of people and only in secured locations. That, according to the Wall Street Journal on Friday, which others have now generally matched and confirmed. The newspaper reported that FBI agents removed about 20 boxes from Trump's resort and residence, including binders, sets of classified government materials, photographs, and at least one handwritten note. Federal, uh, federal agents reportedly seized at least one set of top-secret SCI documents, which is the highest level of classification. Four sets of top-secret documents, so top-secret SCI is higher than top-secret. Also, three sets of secret documents and three sets of confidential documents, the lowest level of classification, uh, you know, like the way the uh, a few of those Hillary Clinton emails were sent to her were marked. It's not known, at least as of airtime, what these uh, documents specifically were about. But during the search, FBI agents also recovered a document about the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. That, according to Wall Street Journal report, now confirmed by others, but it gets better. New York Times also obtained the warrant and the list now of items taken 
They offer even more disturbing details. Well, disturbing for Trump, at least. And the specific crimes that officials believe had probable cause to believe had been committed as listed on the warrant that Donald Trump refused to release before pretending that he was demanding it be released. But still hasn't released on his own. Following the judge's order on Friday, New York Times is now reporting a list of documents removed from Trump's Florida residence includes materials marked as top secret and meant to be viewed only in secure government facilities. According to the copy of the warrant they received, federal agents who executed the warrant did so to investigate potential crimes associated with violations of the Espionage Act, which outlaws the unauthorized retention of national security information that could harm the U.S. or aid a foreign foreign adversary. A federal law that makes it a crime to destroy or conceal a document to obstruct a government investigation. So, yes, obstruction of justice and other another statute associated with unlawful removal of government materials. The search on Monday seized 11 sets of documents in all the Times confirms, including some marked as classified slash TS top secret slash SCI. Shorthand for top secret, sensitive, compartmented information, according to the report. In total, agents collected four sets of top secret documents, three of secret documents, three sets of confidential documents. So pretty much matching what the Wall Street Journal had. The warrant appears to have given agents fairly broad latitude in searching for materials deemed to be improperly stored at Mar-a-Lago, including access to, quote, the 45 office and all storage rooms and other rooms or areas on the premise uh, premises. Trump had announced late Thursday that he supported the Justice Department's legal effort to release the, the warrant with bravado and the suggestion that it was somehow his idea in the first place. <laughs> release the documents now, he demanded amid a flurry of revelations about the investigation. Documents which he could have released last Monday. How dumb are his minions? So the most uh, informative and sensitive documents from the warrant, according to The Times, is an affidavit dealing the uh, detailing the probable cause uh, evidence that prompted Judge Reinhardt to approve the search in the first place. But that document will not be released now or probably ever, according to department officials. So uh, this basically explains all of the reasons that got them to believe there was a probable cause that these crimes were committed and that these documents were available where they believed them to be at Mar-a-Lago. And uh, just to underscore, frankly, how good our guests are on the broadcast uh, as as Republicans were running around being, you know, fake outraged for the last few days about the search on Monday. Frequent broadcast guest Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net had been on Twitter pointing out before all of this evidence was was released. She was uh, pointing out that what was already known, what she was able to figure out 
that the search at Mar-a-Lago was, in fact, because Trump was being investigated under the Espionage Act, long before anyone else was willing to say that. For example, on Thursday morning, Empty Wheel uh, tweeted, Why won't Trump tell us if he's under investigation for violating the Espionage Act? Did the warrant list 18 U.S.C. 793? Yes or no? And now we have this from the New York Times' excellent Charlie Savage after the paper finally obtained the warrant themselves on Friday. He writes, the search warrant for Trump's residence cited three criminal laws, all from, yes, Title 18 of the United States Code, that's 18 U.S.C., Section 793, just as Marcy had asked. Nailed it. Section uh, 793, which he notes is better known as the Espionage Act. It covers the unlawful retention of defense-related information that could harm the U.S. or aid foreign adversaries. Also, Section 1519, which covers destroying or concealing documents to obstruct government investigations or administrative proceedings. And Section 2071, which covers the unlawful removal of government records. Notably, he writes, none of those laws turn on whether information was deemed to be unclassified. So, one of the new defenses that has emerged uh, from the Trumpers in the last day or two is that, oh, you know, Trump simply declassified everything before he took it because he has that power as president. Well, yes and no. There are procedures. He does have that power, but there are, in fact, procedures uh, that must be followed when something is unclassified. But that said, as Savage notes, none of the crimes that the DOJ was looking at that they went to the judge with uh, presenting uh, evidence of probable cause that these laws had been violated. None of those crimes, including the Espionage Act, actually turn on whether the documents were deemed to be unclassified. Even if they were, it would seem like Donald Trump was in some trouble here. Yeah, because it is a crime to mishandle government materials. Period. End of story. Doesn't matter if they're classified or the top classification of uh, all time. Especially when we're talking about the Espionage Act. Yes. And I have to take a break to get to my guest here who is standing by. But let me note, just for the record, on March 29, 1951, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg... You may have heard of them. They were sentenced to death for violating the Espionage Act of 1917. That, of course, is the same act that Donald Trump is now being investigated for having violated and that the Department of Justice and the FBI and even a federal judge sees probable cause to believe he has violated just saying. So with all of that, all of that still breaking, and uh, I'm sure it will continue to break over <laughs> yes. the next uh, few days. So I suspect we will be back to all of this, whether we like it or not. With all of that madness for now, let's take a break and we'll come back 
with, uh, as Monty Python uh, says, something completely different. <laughs> but I would argue at least as important, frankly, and with one of our great guests who actually, yes, knows what they are talking about. David Roberts of Volts joins us next on the landmark and, yes, historic climate change bill almost certainly soon to become law. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Make, well, at least part of it today. Make part of it go away, at least for a few minutes. <laughs> please, pretty please, because uh, there's actually some really, really good news, I think, for us to talk about today for a few rare minutes. Finally. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As of the start of this past week, it looked like after the extraordinary weekend passage of a landmark climate tax and health care bill adopted in the U.S. Senate pretty much against all odds by the Democrats' 50-50 majority in the Senate after pretty much everybody thought that the centerpiece of the Biden economic agenda had been killed dead for good by 50 Senate Republicans and two corrupt right-wing Democratic senators named Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. But after the so-called Inflation Reduction Act's surprise weekend passage in the Senate a week or so ago, it actually looked like the media was finally ready to report in detail on our climate crisis. Can you believe it, Des? I know. It was amazing. And, uh, and of course, the landmark plan to spend some $370 billion finally to begin tackling it. Well, we might have had a week of coverage of that. And on the other long-sought progressive priorities in the bill as it headed to the House. But, of course, come Monday, Monday morning, right after the passage in the U.S. Senate, Donald Trump big-footed everything and everybody again when the FBI carried out an emergency search of his Mar-a-Lago castle seeking what now appears to be highly sensitive documents that the disgraced former president stole from the White House upon leaving office. But since we've had to talk about that for most of the past week, we're going to take at least a quick brief break here for the moment as passage of the Democrats' landmark climate bill is now imminent in the House and hopefully headed for the president's signature shortly thereafter. As we go to air, House Democrats of all stripes are lining up to approve the Senate's $740 billion package, according to The Hill, sending the legislation to Biden's desk and securing a huge win for the president and his party less than three months before this year's critical midterm elections. 
The nearly universal accolades in Congress may reflect, at least in part, the Democrats' astonishment that they're voting on any major part of Biden's domestic agenda at all at this point. Just a few weeks ago, the prospects of enacting a massive climate package this year appeared to be dead. Under the corrupt opposition, most notably of West Virginia coal state Democrat Joe Manchin, whose family and campaign fortunes are built on the fossil fuel industry. This is a big deal. This is historic, and I'm anxious to get it to the floor, pass it, and get it to the president's desk, said Congressman Jim McGovern, Democrat of Massachusetts, to reporters during the run-up in the uh, uh, to the historic House vote. People like me wanted a lot more, he added, before noting, but the bottom line is you can only get done what's possible within the reality you're living. And... In any other Congress, he noted, if we were to pass one of these things, one component of what is in this reconciliation bill, it would be huge. He is correct. The package features major changes across the spectrum of domestic policy, including a plan to slash drug costs for seniors, paid for in part by finally allowing Medicare to negotiate drug pricing with Big Pharma, expand health care subsidies for millions of American families and individuals. It cuts deficit spending, if you care about that sort of thing, via a long-sought minimum corporate tax on the nation's most profitable companies and on their stock buybacks to boost shareholder value instead of investing in their companies and their workers. And most notably, at least to me, it incentivizes both businesses and individuals to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions with a $370 billion investment on a broad swath of climate initiatives. All told, it represents the most comprehensive effort to combat climate change in the nation's history. Though, given our history, that might not be saying much. But in fact, it actually is at least I think it is. We'll see if my guest agrees momentarily. Indeed, House liberals, including their uh, the leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, have been cheering on the legislation as it's moved through the Senate to the House before Friday's historic vote in the lower chamber. As Washington State's Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, head of the Progressive Caucus, said in a statement, quote, while we are heartbroken to see several essential pieces on the care economy, housing and immigration left on the cutting room floor, as well as a successful Republican effort to remove insulin price caps for those with private insurance. We know that the Inflation Reduction Act takes real steps forward on key progressive priorities. Even the Blue Dog Coalition, a group of conservative congressional Democrats, are also hailing the package as transformative. With a razor-thin majority in the House and every Republican in both chambers opposed to the proposal, Democrats have relied on the support of almost every member of the caucus to get it to Biden's desk. But as Congressman McGovern noted earlier in the week, it is indeed no small feat for them to have done so to get Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Sinema all on the same page to vote for the same thing. I would add, 
It's about time, even as there have been some in the liberal social media sphere and among some climate hawk groups who have expressed concern and even criticism of the measure. Since the surprise Manchin-Schumer deal was announced about two weeks ago, we've been trying to check in with some of the progressive climate hawks and scientists and policy wonks that we've turned to over the too many years that we've had to discuss similar but failed initiatives in Congress here on the broadcast. So today I want to turn to one of our favorites to get his thoughts on the climate measures in what I believe, at least, is a landmark bill. Joining us now is our friend David Roberts, who has written for many, many years about politics, climate, energy, and the confluence thereof, well before pretty much anybody in the corporate media, at least, was willing to do so. That, after years uh, at uh, uh, Vox.com and Grist.com, he now publishes his own newsletter called Volts and offers a podcast to go along with it, both of which you can sign up for via Volts.wtf. Yes, that's Volts.wtf. Oh, David Roberts, I think I am really happy to say welcome back to the broadcast to you today, sir. Uh, wow, what different circumstances we, we speak in relative yeah. to the last time. Yeah, well, you know, relative to the last, uh, I don't know, dozen or more times over the past 10 <laughs> or 15 years. You tweeted, David, on August 7th, about one week ago, on the day that the Senate passed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act uh, to spend, among other things, some $370 billion on climate. Climate, David, uh, you tweeted, quote, I don't remember how to react to good news. So, uh, A, have you remembered yet? And B, now that you've had more time to study the bill, is it still good news? Uh, yes, it's still good news. And one of the one of the skills you have to have to react to good news as a, a liberal is you have to defend your happiness from the other liberals. Yes. So that's what I've spent the last week doing. Uh, yes. Saying, wait, no, we are allowed to be happy. Guys, yeah. please. Yeah, I decades, know. Decades of misery. Can we just for a few minutes? But no, I know, I know, and and I'm going to talk about some of those uh, liberals that you've had to uh, defend, <laughs> as have I over the uh, past week. But so it is good news. What's uh, why is it such good news, David Roberts? Well, I the shortest way to put it is this way: if you recall uh, Obama's stimulus mm -hmm. bill, it contained about ninety billion dollars for clean energy. Mm -hmm. And that bill is responsible for kicking off uh, an absolute firestorm of growth in both those markets, basically helping to bring their costs down below fossil fuels and revolutionizing the U.S. energy uh, landscape. Mm -hmm. And that was $90 billion mostly on wind and solar. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about $370 billion on wind solar, hydrogen, batteries, go on down the list. So just the mass of it, this is going to spur another revolution in U.S. energy. The next 10 years are going to be uh, fascinating. You have uh, been coming on this program, as I noted, for years now, well over a decade, I think, at this point, uh, discussing the efforts, many of them which ultimately failed in Congress for one reason or another. And you often had to detail how those various plans and, and mechanisms that Democrats were 
sort of inventing and trying to put in place how they would actually begin to decarbonize the nation uh, and our economy. So despite some of the giveaways to the fossil fuel industry in this measure in order to buy Manchin's necessary vote for passage, do you believe this bill has the mechanisms that will do just that? Are they written in such a way that it will that they will accomplish what we all hope they will? Well, we've now had three separate independent modeling firms model this thing, mm-hmm. and they all more or less agree that it is going to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions around 40 percent by 2030, which gets us within striking distance of our Paris Treaty commitments, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, Paris Agreement, you're mm-hmm. not allowed to say treaty, Paris Agreement <laughs> right. commitments, right. uh, and, and more to the point, you know, so it doesn't get us all the way where we need, where we're pledged to be, but the important thing is it makes everything else we need to do to get there much, much easier. Like, it's going to make state action much easier. It's going to make regulatory action from EPA much easier. So um, the short answer is yes. As far as we know, our best expert knowledge says, yes, this is going to get us within striking distance of our targets, which is miraculous since, as you know, about a week ago, we were staring in the face of a big goose egg from Congress, a big nothing. So this really is the difference between almost total failure on climate Mm -hmm. on the part of Democrats and something very close to the level of success that I would have hoped for and dreamed for. I mean, it's really um, cannot be exaggerated what a wild, (laughs) apart apart from what you think about the details of the legislation, it is just wild that this thing is going to pass. Yeah. I I mean, we had no idea two weeks ago. uh, You're not not only staring in the, in the, you know, into the face of defeat, but watching as literally the world was just, uh, you know, blowing up heat waves all over the world, flooding, droughts, uh, wildfires getting worse and worse. And that's still happening by the day. So uh, to see this kind of response, I mean, it's like uh, you know, throwing a life raft. Uh, to, yeah, to this, this is mess. like bottom of the bottom of the ninth inning stuff, and it is absolutely <laughs> yes. saving U.S. credibility, which would have been nuked if the Democrats mm. had been unable to pass any anything. It would have just been devastating to international climate uh, negotiations generally. So. And do you have a sense, David, um, you know, we've talked about that uh, Schumer and Manchin both said this would cut uh, emissions by about 40 percent by uh, 2030. And those studies you mentioned found the same. Do you have any sense? Does that include the knock on effect that it will have on states? Or are we talking about sort of 40 percent from this federal bill? uh, And that is in addition to. Uh, actions that uh, separate actions that that states may take. Do you have any sense of, uh, of that? The forty the forty percent number mm-hmm. is actually relatively conservative for a couple of reasons. One, no, it doesn't include anything that this prompt on the city or state level, mm-hmm. and I think it will prompt a lot mm-hmm. uh, of action. But you know, you can't <laughs> predict the details of that, so you can't model it. Mm-hmm. But but more to the point, there are provisions even in the bill. So, for instance, there's 27, I think, 26, 27 billion dollars devoted to establishing a green bank, which is just 
an institution that is meant to make low-cost capital available to emission-reducing projects at the local or state level. Mm. There, there are green banks already operating in a number of states. They have a long record of success. And basically, you can, with a green bank, take a dollar and draw in, you know, five, ten, fifty dollars of private capital just through seeding mm. these projects. Mm-hmm. So, twenty-seven billion dollars of authority for a national green bank is going to multiply itself uh, uh, ten times over, and is going to be responsible for a bunch of emission reductions. It just can't be modeled because you don't yet know, you know, what who they're going to loan to or who they're going to make the capital available to. So you can't included in the model, but that's a huge additional chunk of reductions. And, um, you know, the the loan pro- the DOE, Department of Energy Loan Programs Office, which mm-hmm. just loans, <clears throat> loans money to sort of early stage technologies, mm-hmm. is getting billions and billions more dollars of authority. And that's not modeled either, but that will also serve to spur, um, you know, spur development in these technologies. So, and and um, so there's just yeah there's lots of sort of second order effects mm. of this bill that can't be captured in a model but which I think are going to be mostly mostly positive and of course one other thing I would say that isn't captured in the models and I like to emphasize this every time I talk to anybody mm-hmm. one of the most important aspects of this bill is the transformative effect it's going to have on our political economy it's going to change politics. You know, I like to I like to draw the analogy with the defense industry, you know, in the US. They're, you know, horrific and evil, but they're very savvy in one way, which is that they spread their investments mm. in facilities and manufacturing facilities and everything else, spread them out across all fifty states. Yeah. So then you have fifty states mm. defending defense spending, which is, you know, noxious. But mm-hmm. It's a good strategy, and that's what this bill does. It's going to spread mm. investments out over all 50 states, and that is going to create constituents for further action. So I think that's sort of the unheralded, almost biggest part of this bill is it's going to transform the politics of climate and energy going forward. Fascinating. So even in states like so-called deep red states, if they end up with you know huge wind farms and uh, solar farms and a lot of people working in those industries, it's going to make it a lot harder for the current uh, denialists and opponents uh, from those uh, elected officials from those states to continue uh, being denialists and Precisely. opponents. I mean, already most renewable energy in the U.S. is in red states. But this is going to not only um, you know prompt a bunch of building of renewables, but mm-hmm. there are huge incentives here for manufacturing. I mean, one of the sort of audacious things this bill is trying to do is create a full end-to-end supply chain for electric vehicles out of basically scratch, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because right now, most of the metals are mined Mm -hmm. and processed overseas, and the batteries are manufactured overseas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This bill is going to spend billions of dollars on manufacturing tax credits, trying to move all that supply chain to the U.S. So it's not just wind and solar farms. They're going to be manufacturing facilities and factories employing thousands and thousands of people in 
red states, and that's you know money talks mm-hmm. in uh, U.S. politics. And and it's actually an interesting aspect because I've seen some people, uh, uh, c- well, complaining or warning that, for example, on this uh, seventy-five hundred dollar credit for electric uh, vehicles, I think after twenty twenty-three. Uh, a certain number of components in the batteries in those vehicles must be made either in the U.S. or with uh, friendly trading con- uh, countries and so forth. Is it that sort of thing that, that you're talking about? Uh, sort of begin yeah, to this onshore is, this uh, this manufacturing? Yes, exactly. Mansion. Well, that's half of it. Mansion did two things to the EV tax credits, and this is everybody's very interested in this, and it's and it's an important piece. Uh, so he did two things. One is he forced them to be means tested which mm. i'm sure your listeners know mm-hmm. is almost always uh dumb right. it's just okay. a, it's just an enormous hassle that is barely going to save any money at all like the amounts of money that are going to be saved by means testing this are are in the context of the bill relatively mm-hmm. trivial but it's but the politics of it are what they are Me- meaning two, meaning essentially you're only uh able to get that rebate if you make like three hundred thousand dollars or less or something like that yeah yeah i forget the exact numbers but it's something yeah. like 150 percent of median income in your area and all this so oh, it's like brother. you know everybody's got their own individual calculation right. and it's just gonna it's just gonna be a bureaucratic hassle right but it's all it's all about having a response to the attack that oh these are subsidies for rich people uh-huh. you know so uh-huh. uh, you know mansion hasn't figured out that policy responses to bad faith political attacks will not actually cause them to stop <laughs> but whatever uh-huh. so another th- another thing you did to the ev credits is impose this domestic um domestic content requirement so the ev credits only apply to evs and I think it's like 40% of the raw materials and 40% of the processing and manufacturing. Again, I'm sort of winging mm-hmm. this. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's mm-hmm. that's close. Qualify for the credit. And this is an interesting bit of tangle here because a lot of people are, are saying that currently there are no EVs that, that meet those criteria. So mm-hmm. So it's possible that for the first two, you know, first one or two years of the credit, that there will be no vehicles that, that uh, qualify for it. But, but what that is, you know, what that's going to do is spur an enormous amount mm-hmm. of investment in domestic processing and, and manufacturing. And the other half of that is the manufacturing tax credits, which are in the bill, which are also just going to dump hundreds of millions of dollars into manufacturing facilities. Mm-hmm. So what this bill, when it passes, is going to do is kick off just an absolute gold rush of investment in domestic supply chains. And it will also, you know, other countries um, will have more incentive now to um, sign, you know, trade agreements with us, friendly mm-hmm. trade agreements with us, so they can qualify for this credit. So, you know, in the, in the long term, it's a salutary idea you it's nice to have a domestic supply chain it'll create a bunch of jobs mm-hmm. it will it will help improve the conditions in which evs are made but at least in the first few years it's going to be a, 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 an interesting sort of uh, oh. traffic jam <laughs> so there you go. That, that's that's not totally settled yet it's not clear you know there are i think there are tweaks that can still be made to it so we'll see but and there's also, uh, I, I think, as I understand it, those restrictions that you're talking about, I think they kick in like after 
2023 or maybe even, you know, cars made after the 2023 model year, which pushes it down the road a little mm. bit further. And yeah. and also it's worth noting uh, yeah. there are credits for used EVs, mm-hmm. which is very cool yep. in this bill. And they are not subject to those domestic oh. requirements as far as I know. So, OK, so there you go. And of course, a lot of this can also be fixed once it's passed. Then once we get to a, you know, a so-called cliff where all of a sudden, hey, next week you're not going to nobody's going to be able to get any <laughs> any of these rebates right. for any electric cars. Let's extend that uh, a, 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 a few months or a year, whatever. That could happen yeah, as well. Uh, David Roberts, we uh, spoke with uh, Penn State's uh, very well-respected climate scientist, Dr. Michael Mann, who I know you know well, uh, about the bill recently. He described the bill's uh, carrots, the incentives to move to clean, uh, renewable energy, as eventually becoming sticks, as he sees it, because the penalties for not doing so... Uh, sort of economic penalties will become so expensive for those who stick with fossil fuels in a greening, decarbonized economy. Do you sort of concur with his assessment as to how this measure is structured? Well, that's definitely how the measure is structured (laughs) for a couple of reasons. Um, Most of what we think of as sticks, um, you know, so for instance, in state climate legislation are regulatory standards. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like a, a X amount of content, X amount of renewable energy for utility or uh, fuel economy standards, you know, all these kind of standards. Mm-hmm. Um, this bill had to be passed through budget reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure your listeners have heard, have heard this before by now, but like in budget reconciliation, you can only include mm-hmm. revenue relevant measures, measures right. that raise or spend revenue, which means no standards, no regulations. Mm. So, you know, if you think of uh, climate policy as a three-legged stool, standards, investments, and justice, mm-hmm. the standards piece just got cut off mm-hmm. because it can't squeeze through mm-hmm. reconciliation. So, so yeah, more or less all the sticks got stripped out. It's, it's a bill, it's a, it's a giant bag of carrots. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea, though, the theory of change here is that these carrots will accelerate the development of renewable energy even further, mm-hmm. even faster, and it's going to undercut the economics of, of fossil fuels even further, mm-hmm. even faster. And so fossil fuels are just going to lose on the market, mm-hmm. you know, and this is sort of the big hope for, for EVs, you know, like a, like a automobile demand for gasoline is a huge, huge chunk of oil demand mm-hmm. generally in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So one of the things the models find is this bill is going to cause a net reduction in U.S. demand for oil and gasoline for the first time ever, ever. Uh, which is uh, ex- extraordinary and awesome if it works. Uh, <laughs> s- some on the left, you had mentioned you've been uh, fighting with other liberals uh, for the past week or so. I feel you, David Roberts. Um <laughs> Some on the left, uh, there's been some griping uh, because, uh, you know, from some, uh, not just on the Internet, but even some environmental groups about the giveaways that are built into this thing, giveaways to the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Mansion insisted on them. Uh, your thoughts on complaints about that, including some that have noted, hey, some fossil fuel industry groups are claiming that they don't hate this bill. So it, it must be terrible or something. Right. Your, your well, response. First. First, let me just say, this heuristic of a 
assessing a bill by how various people feel about it is very bizarre to me. Like, that's the kind of thing you would do if you couldn't see the bill mm-hmm. and you were trying to deduce what was in it from people's reactions. Mm-hmm. But we can see it. Right. We can go read it. Right. We don't have to, like, we don't have to puzzle out what's in it by people's reactions. We know what's in it. It's written on paper. We can go read it. Yep. But anyway, so there are a number of gripes, and they are there are legitimate gripes. So, you know, Manchin uh, required, for instance, that, that if the... U.S. government leases federal land for wind and solar. It also has to lease X amount of land for oil and gas. Like, he made them together. Mm-hmm. And that's just obnoxious. I mean, that's just like, that's that's Manchin's thumb in your eye right there. That's kind of his... Although, his, uh, although to be frank, uh, David, as I understand it, it's not a matter of having to lease the same amount of, of land. It's having to make it available for lease. In, in right, other words, correct, nobody correct. actually very, wants very it. Very important. Yeah. Very important. And there, are, and there are a few specific projects that were sort of caught up in environmental review that they're going to ease passage of, which are obnoxious, especially for those communities who mm-hmm. have been in the pathway of those projects fighting against them for years and years. I totally understand why they are pissed off as being treated like a bargaining chip to get Mm -hmm. this bill passed like i totally totally understand that but it is just and and some other gripes are there's a lot of the the tax credits for carbon capture and sequestration yes got jacked up that's all about mansion that's that's purely mansion Mm -hmm. so a lot of the reductions that are modeled in Mm -hmm. the bill come from ccs and a lot of people are saying a Yes, has never been proven to work at the right. level that we're talking about here. Like, how can you how can you assume these reductions if CCS might not even work? Mm-hmm. And also, um, it, what's called enhanced oil recovery gets a lot of tax credits, which means you capture the carbon, but then you use the carbon to dig up more oil. So mm. there are obnoxious provisions <laughs> in it. But but like, here's a good piece of context. I think like one of the things the modeling found is. For every ton of greenhouse gas emissions produced by these oil and gas lease offers, mm-hmm. 24 tons will be reduced by the other measures in the bill. Mm-hmm. So it sucks. <laughs> like the measures, you know, the measures that Manchin put in suck. But in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture, they are relatively marginal compared to the massive, massive. Um, boost this is going to give clean energy and the massive amount of uh, emissions it's going to reduce. It seems clearly to be a net win if you look at the entire bill. There's Uh, no, there's no, I mean, I don't, there's no credible argument otherwise. Like this is absolutely a net win. Obviously, if you're in the community that the pipeline is going to come through, you know, yeah, you're not maybe, a fan. Maybe, maybe you're not a fan, but net, yep. net, I just don't think there's any argument. This well, is absolutely revolutionary. One, one of the things that that happens here is uh, is a sort of Twitter user in response to my interview with Michael Mann a few days ago, uh, in which, of course, uh, Mann also lauded the bill. Uh, the user, the Twitter uh, person, said, are, "Are we sure about this? What's the point of building green energy if we must?" 
If first, we must drill and build pipelines, adding our news organizations are pure garbage for not telling us what is really going on. Now, David, I admit I did not read all 755 pages of the bill, (laughs) so maybe I missed it. But is there a requirement in the bill that you're aware of that we must first drill and build pipelines before green energy? That's just nonsense. They're just talking about they're just talking about the leasing thing that's that's mm-hmm. tied to public land. Right. And and you know, it's important to remember, as you say, that to make land available for leasing, but like oil and gas companies have not been particularly interested in leasing more land no. lately. And and even a lot of land that gets leased doesn't get exploited. So it's a tiny fraction that will get leased, it's a tiny fraction of that that will be exploited. And Here's the thing, the amount of land we're talking about here in these specific provisions is relatively marginal relative to the amount of land oil and gas companies have access to, right? right? Like this 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 amount of additional land is not going to make a a substantial difference in the economics of oil and gas. What will make a substantial difference in the economics of oil and gas is tens of billions of dollars poured into their competitors. Like yep. if you really want to reduce oil and gas leasing, absolutely the number one way to do that is hurry up with EVs, hurry yeah. up with reducing oil demand. Yeah. Like that's, uh, that's what's going to undercut uh, oil and gas on a, on a macro level. Not, and not to mention they have thousands of leases already that they are yes. not using today. Yes. Uh, yes. Finally, David, I've got just a minute or so here. Uh, if, as expected, this is signed into law by the president, Uh, I hope that, A, you will remember how to celebrate good news, (laughs) and B, if so, you will remind me how to do the same. But then, uh, C, and and I know uh, you talk a lot about this on uh, on your Volts newsletter and podcast, what must happen next for the climate movement? What what should we be talking about the next time you're on this show if this actually ends up happening? Yeah, great question. I think this will be the end of federal legislation uh, for a good long while. Mm. (laughs) I think it's going to be a long time before Democrats have a trifecta in Mm. the federal government again. Uh, You know, and and that's the the prognosis, the outlook for Democrats in the coming elections is not as relentlessly grim as it was mm-hmm. say a month ago like mm-hmm. this you know there there are are signs of hope but but keeping both houses in the presidency is highly unlikely so that means um two things one biden's got to get going on executive action mm-hmm. right he's got to get going uh on the epa uh and, and other agencies mm-hmm. uh doing what they can but again like all that will be easier with yes. this bill in place. Right. Like, just, a, just a, a quick side note on the CCS thing. For instance, if you dump a bunch of money into CCS... Carbon capture and storage, yes, Carbon go ahead. capture and storage, <laughs> such that you make it viable, uh-huh. then the EPA can come along and say, well, we're trying to reduce emissions at existing power plants, and we're looking at the viable technologies. Uh-huh. And look, oh, CCS is viable, so we're going to require that uh-huh. now. And let me tell you, as much as the industry says they support CCS, yep. if they had to put CCS on all their power plants, that's the end of coal, period, full yeah. stop. Yeah. So, so, um, so executive action, and then, of course, uh, states and cities. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh, that's, we're not going to have the federal government for, for a while, 
So states can take all these trends that this bill is going to kick off and accelerate them and make them, you know, make their benefits more concrete to residents of the states. So, you know, <clears throat> politically action is going to devolve downward and into the private sector, too. This is going to give private sector companies that are trying to lower their emissions, you know, your, your, your Googles and Apples and the rest, huge wind in their sails. So there's going to be tons of private action coming. And then, uh, you know, a big, a big next step for the activist movement is going after financial institutions mm. to try to cut off funding yeah. for these fossil fuel projects that remain. So there's plenty of work to do, uh, oh, uh, but, but every single bit of it is going to be made easier by the money in this bill. I just can't believe you and I are talking about uh, good news. I'm sure something will go wrong before <laughs> I know, all I is said. I keep looking over my shoulder. Yeah, I keep looking over my shoulder like, is, is the mansion behind you right now? Yeah. Like, is the mansion in the room with you yeah, right now? Yeah, I know. I know. But uh, may, maybe this one will work. We'll see. And it does sound like we'll have plenty to talk about anyway in the future with you, sir. Yep. Uh, David Roberts, of course, of volts.wtf. That's where you can find both his newsletter and his podcast. And, of course, you can find him on the Twitters at drvolts. David Roberts, always a pleasure, my friend, even more so today when there's something good to talk about for a change. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. All right. Okay. And yes, I know, Desi Doyen, I have blown (laughs) through another break. Again. Yes, again. But but there was lots of good stuff to talk about, so I'm okay. Well, it's not every day that there's a $370 billion uh, climate bill uh, that is heading to the White House (laughs) to be signed. And it's also not every day that a former president is facing uh, potential charges of violation of the Espionage Act. Just to repeat our top story today. Wow. Holy mackerel. Uh, I don't even know where we will be by the next broadcast, but I hope you will be there with us. My thanks to our (laughs) producer, Desi Doyen, to, of course, David Roberts, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It's always an honor, and sometimes it's amazing. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to leave a one-time donation or sign up for a, an automated subscription of any amount you like. It is always appreciated, and it helps assure no paywall at bradblog.com. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 